Hello and welcome to Young and Brown. This is your host Hassan. And Faria. And this is After a Long Haters that we are welcoming you. Absolutely. Um, it's a pleasure to be back here this month. We have some really exciting topics to discuss with you today. And one of the main thing is the COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer. So Hassan, how are Sorry. Finally, finally. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been a wait, and it's one of those things that the whole world has waited for it together. I used to get this kind of anticipation when we used to have like a sports tournament, like a cricket World Cup or a football World Cup, but it, those were nothing compared to this because this was literally the whole world. Well, like, what can I say? It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> absolutely, I I definitely agree, and. I was just telling a colleague today that 2020 has been a whole different kind of terrible as a year. So it definitely can get worse, any worse than that. So that's why I'm very optimistic about the vaccine. Um, how, how much worse can it get, right? Like 1.63 million people dead globally and continuing to die right now of COVID. And um, we've all lost people personally. We've all known people who've lost people and our lives have been transformed by this. So it's it's been something and i'm really looking forward to what 2021 has to hold for us it it does it does um it's too close to home doesn't it because i know my immediate family members have been affected your immediate family members have been affected and some lives lost some lives have been changed forever and um as as bad it is as it is but um you know finally we are there we are we can see a light at the end of the tunnel um we have need, we have not even reached the end of the tunnel yet, but we can at least see a glimpse of hope. Definitely. Um, so we're just going to take the conversation down to where we're located right now. So I'm based in Ottawa, Ontario, in Canada, and I just want to read out some headlines from today in a couple of different newspapers, and that will bring me down to exactly what I want to discuss right now, which is Ottawa Citizen said today, 14 hours ago that Ottawa PSW becomes first in the city to receive COVID-19 vaccine. CBC News said personal support worker is first person in Ottawa to get the COVID-19 vaccine. CTV Edmonton, um, obviously not an Ottawa-based paper, but that one said Ottawa's first COVID-19 vaccine was given to a personal support worker. Um, yeah, so I think this is like, I think it's it's pretty amazing. And what I love about this is, you know, in healthcare, um, that's my background, we always see like, you know, like physicians are considered like the leaders of the profession and like the healthcare industry and um, people who are taking the industry forward. But during this pandemic, we really saw that more like people who are doing more hands-on work, like nurses and personal support workers were um, leading a lot, you know, they were obviously like taking a bigger risk. They were obviously there more on the hospital units and in long-term care homes in person. Um, they were definitely making bigger sacrifices proportionally because of the nature of their work. And for a personal support worker to be the first one in Ottawa City to receive the vaccine, I think it's like a really nice way to kind of honor the work and the sacrifice that they have done. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. So they have definitely started it in Ottawa based out of the Ottawa Civic Hospital. That's where I was just doing my um, internal medicine rotations a month ago. And They've announced that they're going to start off. So Canada's um, announced its rollout plan. So there was like a federal decision and then there was like all the provinces um, declared their own rollout plans about who's going to get the vaccine first. And I looked at the chart and it looked pretty reasonable to me, Hassan, that they're starting off with all the people who are working in long-term care homes. So the frontline healthcare staff there. 
followed by there's probably going to be like some residents who are also 80 plus years and 70 plus years in high risk groups, followed by assisted living facilities. So that would consider like retirement homes, community housing kind of situation where there's uh, other staff and other residents living there. And then eventually it's pretty it's a pretty long line to get to the general public, though. So how's the condition in Toronto? Do we really know anything about when Toronto may be receiving its first COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer? Well, um, the I mean, the vaccine literally arrived last Sunday evening and Toronto. And this is this is what I find it funny that um, there's still politics going on with this, um, that Quebec, Quebec and Toronto gave the first vaccine shot to long care, long term care residents within half an hour of each other. And now it creates a confusion. And this is in global news, by the way, I'm citing a global news. Uh, .ca, it says it creates a confusion as to which province can claim as which province gave the first shot. And I'm like, well, what does that who matter? Who cares? Who cares? I mean, it doesn't matter where it is getting. And then, um, but I think it, it will be more towards um, Montreal because Health Minister Christian Dubé said that the province plans to give the first dose to the of the Pfizer vaccine to about 2,000 uh, long-term care homes in Montreal. Uh, Toronto and Quebec are the most hard um, hit cities yeah. in, in Toronto, I remember, in, in Canada. Um, yeah, just to add there, like, I remember I was working frontline at the beginning of the pandemic. I think it was like around April, May. It was really bad. And there were some homes in Montreal which had such a bad like case of multiple outbreaks of COVID. There were, like, I think it was like a really rare time in, in Quebec history there was a massive walkout of like nursing staff and healthcare staff because it was so dangerous for their own health and well-being to be in that situation. And there was some kind of controversy. I don't recall exactly what it was that there was like poor management as well. And of course, everybody was like still learning uh, how to manage this. It was pretty early on. And eventually, I believe the military had to get involved and um, kind of remove any kind of deceased residents from there, from their long-term home. So long-term homes have actually been in the news quite a bit this this year. Um, I'm almost happy that even though if it was through a tragedy, that they've finally been like under the limelight and people have a bigger understanding of some of the major shortcomings and places that we need to improve on in terms of delivering care in long-term care, um, the way that we need more regulation, because the most outbreaks I believe that happened were in the like most poorly managed one right and a lot of the yeah. private homes also came under question and how they were managing it yeah i mean these are the most vulnerable um segment of the society um they have they have worked their whole life and now at the end of or near the terminal um age of their life where uh, they're they're old they're fragile um their immune system might not be as strong as um other younger generations, um, as it happens with life, um, we should have been able to support them and give them more um, care and give them more priority. Um, it, it came to our notice. Um, it's, it's, well, it's a bit too late for some, but it's not too late for the others. Um, so, I can't say that there is a silver lining at the, I mean, there is a silver lining, but it did have, or we had to pay the cost or we had to bear the cost of it. 
Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I was just going to read out something from cdvnews.ca. Um, there's a couple of fast facts li listed on the website, and it says like the first COVID-19 vaccines to arrive in Ottawa will be administered today. So this was today, Monday, December um, 15th, that we're recording it. And Ottawa Public Health reported 48 new cases of COVID-19 and one new death on Monday. So this is like heartbreaking that the deaths continue now because we're so close to not a cure, but we're so close to being COVID free. The vaccines are just being, you know, um, administered. So all I would just request people and beg everybody in Canada and worldwide is to continue social distancing, continue um, staying safe and practicing all of the guidelines like hand washing and mask wearing and shields and everything and just avoiding large crowds because guys, we're so close. But even now, if you get infected, this isn't a cure, right? Even now, if you have, uh, if you're a high risk group, and you get infected, this vaccine can't do anything for you. So you still have a high chance of death and like a lot of suffering through it. So just hang on there. The vaccine's gonna be out. Give it a couple of months. I'm thinking like early next year, like March, April, even around May, we might be able to start declaring, okay, X number of population in Canada has been vaccinated and that's brought down the risk and the number of cases drastically. Um, another sad thing I wanted to discuss is that I was just talking to somebody, uh, one of my older colleagues at a assisted living facility today in Ottawa, and I was like, hey, are you guys all excited to take the vaccine? And they're like, no, 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 I'm not putting that in my body. And then I realized it wasn't one person, like a majority of the people there were not willing to put the vaccines in the body. And these were not anti-vaxxers. These are not people, these are people who take the flu shot every year. But it's particularly this vaccine that they're very scared of. It's but, um yeah, but but to to add to that part that you're speaking, um, people who are who are not anti-vaxxers are in fact um, are a bit, I would say, skeptical about taking this vaccine, and because throughout all the time they have seen or we have seen that it takes quite some time for um, vaccines to come out. And this one has been rushed, and the due diligence that that has been done is not um, is not that transparent. Our QA or quality assurance um, bodies of the government or Pfizer or whoever has not been able to be up for, forefront or was not that convincing. And I'm not saying it's their fault, but we are. It time is of the essence. So um, I think. People were more more expecting to, once it passed the quality control, like get it out to the public because their first or main concern was how can we put a break to this vicious cycle of death and losing loved ones. But, Absolutely, and but then but then it actually in fact uh, had a, a detrimental effect of people's trust because people were like oh I'm not so sure if this has been done in or if all the procedures have been properly followed. Yeah, I think um, one more thing we need to consider here, like all of us as the population is that um, we're comparing it to other drugs and diseases. Like, okay, XYZ drugs before used to take 30 years to be developed as a vaccine. And this one took one year, which means there hasn't been due diligence done. However, those other diseases did not necessarily impact as large a uh, section of the world population, right? Or those diseases did not have the kind of social and political pressure and power and the amount of funding and research grants being flushed into it. 
Um, so I really think it tells us a lot that if we had that kind of global um, focus on one disease, one infection at one point in time, especially now as a time in history where there is so much already scientific uh, uh, establishments and advancements and tools and technology available. And then if you add the money on top of it and the resources and the government support and the political and social pressure and the media pressure, then you can actually push out an actual infectious disease vaccine in a year. That Absolutely. It is Absolutely. And yeah, it's interesting because um, this COVID coronavirus 2019 is actually caused by a virus that's called SARS-CoV-2. Uh, so it is like an evolved version of the one that caused SARS and MERS epidemics. And it's interesting because I feel like between the human species and the viral species, it's like they're saying every time we're going to ignore us, or we're going to shun us, or we're going to die out, we're going to come back stronger. And that's exactly what it did. Like this specific virus has been evolving and coming back stronger. And that's where we are right now. And that kind of makes me wonder about um, the future of infectious diseases. Because in terms of healthcare, there was a concept of a couple of years ago, or a couple of decades ago, that, okay, the first world, you don't have so many infectious diseases, right? It's a disease of the third world. Third world people are still dying from like, all that cholera and everything and infectious diseases and tuberculosis and things like that. The first world has already solved. Um, and it's true, like the cases were much worse there due to population and due to like poverty and other like lack of health, access to healthcare and things like that. Um, and people thought, okay, that's not an issue here. Our main concerns are like autoimmune diseases and cancers and different kind of diseases of the first world where you already have like a high um, age of survival. So the average lifespan here in Canada, for example, is like close to 80. Whereas in my country of origin is Bangladesh, it's like around 60, 65. So people live longer here. So they get more kind of late stage end of life diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other things, uh, different kinds of cancers. But I think this one's shown us that the world is not done with infectious diseases. It won't be. It is not. It, it, has, yeah. it has not. I mean, God forbid. But what if, what if, I mean, well, we we have eradicated um, smallpox from the world, but it's not that that disease or that virus has just vanished out of the world. That virus is still there, but it it has not been able to affect us much more or in a in a global or pandemic way. But what if it mutates? What if polio mutates? I mean, are we ready for that? I don't think so. I mean, people will take this as like, oh, uh, the virus or the vaccine is already there, so we shouldn't care. We already have it, but you know, my point is we we kind of um, take things granted so much that we kind of start defying nature or disobey the laws of nature, which which is much more powerful than we can imagine. And this a simple, simple um, virus such as um, SARS showed us that no matter how advanced we are, just a few tweaks of the strain here and there, and it can, you know, hold the whole world um, hostage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually had a, I was, I had the honor of caring for a patient this year who was over a hundred years. I think you call them centurions. Yeah, centurions. Yeah. Centurions, and um, so in the beginning of the pandemic, we would like joke and say like, "Wow, you've officially survived two major global pandemics because I think he was alive during the Spanish flu and then the COVID-19. 
And then unfortunately, the person has passed away unrelated to COVID-19. So he did technically survive the two global pandemics in his lifetime, but then he died for unrelated reasons. So that was a very, very sad moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 not only that, like coming back to coming back to the government's preparedness, um, not only the, the if it if it only if the first world, say North America or Europe or the Western world is prepared to tackle this and countries like Asia, uh, countries in Asia are not prepared. I mean, this virus will just not phase out from the world like yeah. smallpox. I mean, it has to be a global this thing and all the all the government has to come together to to say that okay, we need a solid plan because we are still That's grappling with interesting because I think you're bringing us to a topic about access to healthcare and the disparity in health systems and yeah. What's really amazing is um with the US all like screaming and shouting about how universal healthcare is a terrible idea and yada yada. But I think for the COVID-19 vaccine, they will have to follow the model of universal healthcare and they will have to provide free health insurance for their population and put it out for free. They, I know that in many states, at least, they have been doing testing for free, uh, unlimited number of testing. You can just keep going and getting tested. And now for the vaccine, they're going to have to do that. So I really hope it gives them some kind of a lesson that there is benefit to providing free healthcare and not letting citizens die. Um, I'm also really happy to know that the United Kingdom, uh, again, somebody with an excellent uh, model of um, universal healthcare um, and um, free healthcare for its citizens, was one of the first ones to not only partner with academic research institutes and have a model of the vaccine developed, but also to vaccinate their population. Canada, again, is like the second. Canada and United States are basically the second and third countries, I believe, where they've been vaccinating. And it's been really great to see, like the first couple of countries are mostly countries which have this model of healthcare. And so it clearly like works. But I am definitely worried about other countries. Like in Bangladesh, for example, we have no news about when it's coming. Um, we have no idea how they're see, going to make the South it. Asian, the South Asian region or the Southeast Asian region, where which is tropical and subtropical. I mean, I don't think they will have the capacity to store um, Pfizer's Pfizer's um, um, vaccines because it takes minus minus seventy or minus, minus 70 or eighty. Yeah, so their options would have been like a liquid nitrogen tank and stuff. So there is a like uh, some logistical and infrastructural investments that they would need to do. Yes, There's and and sometimes way. they're constrained with the power shortage because the country does not have power enough to have these coal coal chains. In fact, I was reading today on the news that uh, the government of Bangladesh and India, and they're thinking about starting um, a SARC coal chain, or at least Bangladesh is doing it. They're starting their own country coal chains to have these vaccines. If, if it can store um, Oxford, Ox, the one, the, the vaccine that is created by Oxford does not need to be stored in such low temperatures. Neither does Moderna, but they still need lower temperatures to be stored in. So um, a couple of things there. Um, there are models of refrigeration where you can reach minus 150 without needing a power supply. Um, but that again needs other kinds of financial investment, like certain kinds of tanks, certain kind of chemical liquids, and enough supply of that so that you can keep you know, 
um, submerging your samples in there. And even that tank to be transported place to place and keep being refilled with certain chemicals to bring down the temperature. Uh, I do see lots of logistical issues for, for countries which have like a financially strained healthcare system and financially strained economy. Um, the other issue is, I feel it's really sad that these countries might have to base their choice of vaccine, not on like the SVR, like the sustained response, not on the percentage success, but on which one will survive the heat of my economy or which one I won't have to buy a fridge for, right? Because that's not what a country should ideally, public health or health uh, ministry should not be basing their decisions on this, but on the data. They should look, I think, I believe that's what Canada has done. They've looked at all of the data. They've looked at the highest rate of success within a given population, 1995, whatever it is. And they've made other scientific decisions with their panels and their con consultants. And they've made that decision based on that. Um, but of course, Canada has the luxury to make that decision because they have the funding um, to invest in infrastructure if they needed to. But there are other countries which might end up having to go for the cheaper vaccine or the vaccine that doesn't have high storage requirements and other things. Yes, and and then one more thing we have to also remember that not all the all not everything will be resp um, all the strains will be might not respond. I'll not say will be. That would be a very far fetched or very definitive uh, statement. I would say not all strains will might uh, respond to this particular vaccine. Some if if people are in the Middle East, what are the chances that that those strains are responding responding to the vaccines that's created with? In, I'm talking about in long term, uh, are, create, are, are um, responding to the vaccines created in Pfizer or Moderna or, or, or something that's in um, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, which, which is financially the constraint by, and not only financially, financially, in terms of geography, in terms of infrastructure, they are constrained, right? So um, I don't know how, how much they can afford these and how much will this vaccine be successful? What is the success rate of, of these particular vaccines that we are getting in North America? So right now, I don't think there's too many strains out there. I just uh, have a headline here from CBC News uh, where it says British scientists investigating new strain of coronavirus, but downplay concerns. So it's there's a good possibility there is a couple of other strains out there, but I don't think they are as deadly as the strain that we're currently dealing with globally. Um, but yeah, it's only a matter of time before new strains are found. Um, but even then, I think it would like buy us enough time. We would have known enough about the virus by now in the world and the scientific community that if we needed to adjust the vaccine, right? Because there are a lot of vaccines which are now, um, like for example, the flu shot. Each year and every year, the scientists, they study what are the common strains creating the flu in a given um, society. And then they modify the flu shot in order to target those most prevalent uh, strains because they can do every strain ever for flu shot to give you immunity. So I think we might have to come to a point where we're like coming out with like new versions of vaccines and new versions of vaccines every year, um, maybe comprising of all the latest strains or the strains that are most prevalent in the country on the continent you are living in. So we are very likely going to be looking at um, new generations. And we're already, we know that this um, one needs a booster. So one dose is not going to be enough, two or three doses might be needed. 
um, with a certain number of uh, gap period. And that's not unusual for vaccines. That's been there for others as well. Um, but what is concerning is like in third world countries where infrastructure is limited and access to care is limited, a lot of people actually have to like walk or bus or go long distances to the city and the only hospital in the nearby city to go and get their shot, right, to survive this. And for those people to have to come back again in two months time to get their booster dose or for them to have to keep coming back um, to get new shots for new strains, like there is a huge um there's a huge reason to be demotivated by that process and feeling like, okay, I can do it. You've exhausted all of your resources. Um, if I wish it had been like a one-shot cures all kind of thing, but I don't, it's definitely not going to be. I mean, in, in, in future, we might be, it will be like, remember when we were young, uh, we, they used to give us one flu shot or for example, polio. Now there's, we don't, we, we don't need any booster shots for polio anymore or smallpox because it has or we the scientific community or the doctor or the vaccine has evolved that if you if you get it once um you will be um you'll form the immunity so i'm pretty sure down the line um we will have some vaccines that are for even for corona that if you get it once you'll be you'll be um, immune to this but you know how what is the price that we have to pay to go there or to reach there and how long will it take how many more lives and loved ones do we have to lose absolutely so i think with that we're going to be ending today's episode and it's a thought that we all need to consider we've already lost lives and this this entire pandemic should be able to help us rethink our choices in healthcare system and in even like scientific and public health preparedness of our communities and definitely hoping to get more awareness in the general population about the development of the vaccine, the, how, what the strains it's going to be targeting and everything like that. And um, I'll just finish up with one last thing to kind of calm people down for tonight. So again, um, from globalnews.ca, we see a quote, no need to panic because COVID-19 mutations are unlikely to impact vaccine experts say. So so far, at least, the new strains that have been seen through these mutations are still covered under the current vaccine model, which means the kind of proteins they're using to generate immunity in our body against the virus um, will still cover any new virus strains that are in existence right now, but we cannot really tell about the future. So let's wrap it up today. Yes. With that, we'll say, guys, everyone, stay safe, stay healthy. Please, please, please do follow the guidelines, the health care guidelines and safety guidelines that has been initiated by the government of each country, respectively. And, um, well, it's the month of December, the miracle, the Christmas miracle, the magical month. So. Yeah, so Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah and Happy New Year. Happy holidays, everyone. This is us signing off, Faria. And Hassan. From the Young and Brown Show. <laughs>